0: on today's episode.
1: That once we factor in that our ability to use the sun's and the wind's energy is dependent upon metal extraction, we need to extract metals and minerals from under the earth. And that already has a geopolitics to it.
0: Welcome to the Active Share, a podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott-Gall. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Helen Thompson. Helen is Professor of Political Economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge University. Her present work centers on the geopolitics, political economy, and domestic politics of energy. Her most recent book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, was published last year and was shortlisted for the 2022 Financial Times Business Book of the Year. She has written for, among other outlets, the Financial Times, New York Times, Sunday Times, The Guardian, as well as Foreign Affairs, Project Syndicate, the London Review of Books, The New Statesman, Nature and Prospect. Helen, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Hugo.
0: So I thought I... where we'd start, the sort of setup for what I want to talk about really is the overlapping themes of your book, which you call disorders. So you could argue maybe it's a bit gloomy, but I think we might end on a more optimistic note. But I really see the setup as you argue that energy, who has energy, who needs energy, so the surpluses and deficits of energy are central to really the economic history of the 20th century and indeed the current period we are living in. So you think about Surpluses and deficits of energy, the same for capital. And that feeds into economic independence or the lack thereof, which feeds into political independence or the lack thereof, which clearly then influences the stability and strength of, of democracies. Do you think, is, is that a fair summary of how have I understood what is a excellent but quite complex book well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I basically wanted to tell a history, a long history of the 2010s as a decade and make energy pivotal to that. And in doing so, I thought it was important to tell a story about the geopolitics of the 20th century, right from the beginning of it, from the time when what I would call the age of oil began. Then from the 1970s economically, because we can see very clearly there in that decade, I think, the way in which energy crises and monetary problems came together, and then a history of democracies where I would say that I'm not making such a strong argument about the explanatory power of energy. I think that understanding the politics of energy is very important in relation to the United States as domestic politics. But I think that whilst the problems generated by the economics and geopolitics of energy consumption are a part of the story of democratic politics in European states. they are only one part of it, and there are other things that I think were pertinent to the disruptions of the 2010s that were going on then. But my big organising idea is indeed that we can't understand the present geopolitical, economic and political world without understanding the effect, the deep effects that fossil fuel energy had on the 20th century, and that the energy transition in conjunction with the ongoing problems that fossil fuel energy generates are having on the 21st century.
0: Great, great. Well, I'm going to give myself a pass. I think I mostly, mostly understood it. So look, can we start on energy? In your book, you focus on the Suez crisis as being a more seminal important moment for different reasons than perhaps you thought. This wasn't necessarily about the sort of final denouement for British imperial power. It's much more about where Europe would get its energy from and the US's role in that. Could you talk a bit about why you think that's so important?
1: Yeah, I think in order to see this, we need to understand that all the major European powers in the first part of the 20th century, in ways I would suggest were fairly catastrophic, tried to deal with the fact that they were dependent upon foreign oil, including, obviously, oil from the United States, indeed, primarily oil from the United States, uh, or at least from the Western Hemisphere. They tried to deal with that problem, and they all failed. They failed in different ways. Germany, obviously, went down a very catastrophic road under the Nazis. But the British and the French were not able... To turn their empires into empires that could solve their energy problems, Britain now kind of hung on in there through the Second World War in the Middle East. It still had a position in the sense that the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, as it was, which had was fifty percent plus or fifty-one percent owned by the British um, state, was still operating in. The Middle East. It was one of the, the seven sisters of the international oil companies, and um, the British still had a military position in the Middle East. Indeed, some effectively colonies or dependent um, principalities. The, the the Gulf Arab states in the Middle East, and because the Americans in the post-war world, so from 1945, did not want the European states to go back to importing oil from the Western Hemisphere. Or really to import it from the Soviet Union, albeit the Soviets had a reduced export capacity in the immediate years after the, the Second World War. That meant West European countries importing oil from the Middle East and the United States had no intention of using its military power in the post-war world to be the military guarantor of West European oil security in the Middle East. That role was left to Britain. And it was knowingly left to Britain by the United States as well as by the British themselves. So whatever else was true about the ongoing British imperial position in the Middle East, it was in some sense a feature of the way in which the NATO states dealt with West European energy security in the first decades of the the Cold War. So when the British behaved as they did at Suez in saying that NASA's nationalisation of the company that owned the Suez Canal was a threat to West European energy security. The British were doing what they were supposed to be doing, if you like, in the NATO division of power in the first decade of the, the Cold War. But Eisenhower was always juggling another problem, which was he didn't want the Washington lined up against Arab nationalism. And he certainly didn't want that at a time when he was running for re-election. So when the Zurich crisis came, the British did what they thought was their role. They performed that role. And the Americans used their financial power to say, no, you don't. Now, that was then a huge seismic shock, not just in Britain, but in France, obviously, because France had been party to the military action too, but also in West Germany. I mean, Conrad Adenauer, the West German Chancellor, said that it was a in some sense, a violation of European reason of state, what the Americans had done. And what you can see from that point is that the West European governments in different ways, in part collectively and in part not collectively, all said we need to do something different about energy security. So on the one hand, we see the turn towards Soviet oil and that in time into the 70s is going to turn into a much deeper energy relationship, not just oil, but gas too, because gas was starting to grow in significance for European countries at this um, point, but also a much sharper turn to nuclear power than had previously been the case before. And so Suez is a point of departure, because European states, West European states can't think Middle Eastern oil is going to take care of our energy problems for the foreseeable um, future. They had to think in in different ways, because they'd realised that the Americans were willing to exercise a veto of what West European states could do to deal with their energy security problem.
0: So if the most important foreign policy of any country in the 20th century was the US, that was pretty correlated with how secure or insecure the US felt about its own energy supply. Would you agree that's a fair statement? And, And the second part of that is when the US becomes more energy secure, which shale allowed it to in this century Europe usually pivots in some way east towards Russia is that a sort of fair summary of the US's the, the importance of US oil production driving foreign policy which has global implications particularly in Europe which is short oil in a big way but also also China
1: yeah i think the gist of that is Correct. I mean, I think that we can certainly see that American foreign policy changes quite significantly in the 1970s. The Middle East has an importance that it has not had before. It's not that the Americans have not been interested in the Middle East that they have, but by the end of the decade that they have for the first time, Got a national security doctrine that ties American security interests to the Middle East and the Persian Gulf in particular, the the Carter doctrine. And if we then say, well, why did that turn come came about? It came about because pre-shale U.S. domestic oil production peaked in 1970, and the U.S. thereafter in the 70s was on a pretty sharp, rapid trajectory to becoming the world's largest oil importer. Something it's still. Was until 2017 when China replaced it. So a world in which the United States was in part dependent upon oil imports from the Middle East was geopolitically a different world than when the United States was largely domestically self-sufficient in oil. I think then if we turn to shale, if we think about it from the American position, we can see that a world then in which the united states went back to not complete self sufficiency or in fact anywhere real near self sufficiency on oil but significantly higher domestic production and with a capacity to export oil and had a domestic gas boom that meant that the period in which the united states had been importing gas from abroad was coming to came to an end so now the united states really is domestically self-sufficient in um, gas, that that had a profound impact on both the ability of the United States to project power in the world, not least in relation to the Middle East, and which it was now less energy dependent, but it also had a profound impact on the state, Russia, that had dominated pretty much entirely the European gas market because now Russia had a competition for those, a competitor for those gas markets in the United States and that the desire to buy gas from the United States rather than from Russia sort of matched pre-existing geopolitical fault lines in the European Union about the relationship with Russia. So if we just put it very you know, schematically, in Warsaw, the view was the prospect of liquid natural gas from the United States was a sovereignty lifeline. In Berlin, the view was absolutely no reason to change from the status quo of pipeline supply of cheap gas from Russia. So it wasn't just that the nature of the American power changed on the energy side because there became a greater ability to use energy for geopolitical um, purposes and to rethink existing geopolitical tensions, particularly in the Middle East, it was it changed the options that European states had and it allowed ultimately the United States to put significantly more pressure on European states about energy again. So if we go back to that Suez story and say that that was a period in which the Europeans tried, or the West Europeans I should say, tried to assert some autonomy against the United States having had such a restriction on their autonomy placed at Suez. I think we can see then the period from the 70s through to one can argue whether it's like the middle of the 2010s or all the way through to the Russia's war in which Europeans and Germany in particular had gathered for themselves considerable autonomy from American pressure on their energy policy. That period then came to an end. And part of that story is is obviously about the way that Russia behaved, but it's also about the ability of the United States in some sense to discipline European powers where energy is concerned through shale.
0: So I've got two questions coming off that, but I don't want to ask them both at once because it's too much. But the first is there's certainly an argument now that the u.s is increasingly self-sufficient not just in energy but in lots of things you know the u.s is is a lucky country in that sense and therefore it doesn't need to police the world and that policing really comes in the form of the u.s navy so that changes the established order and someone else or others will have to step in to make make the world safe certainly if you are an importer of things and certainly if you're an exporter of things and it shifts you start getting more regional powers than maybe you had is that a view you subscribe to because if you say the transition to renewables, alternative forms of energy just takes longer, and there are some we know those impediments, such as storage, if that takes longer and US shale is close to peaking, and that's maybe a dangerous assumption to make to bet against the engineers that actually the US can't get more productive. But if if the US sees it's beginning to import a bit more energy, Now, obviously, the US is a great place to have renewables. It's sunny and it's windy. So again, the US is lucky there. But if that takes longer, might this idea that the US really is retreating so much from the world be wrong? Because it's going to have to hang around a bit longer because it does have a small but growing external energy dependency.
1: I think that the way that this question plays out is for the me over the next decade is pretty important. I think that what is true already or what is clear already i should put it that way is there is a sharp distinction between gas and oil in this respect it is it doesn't look like the united states is going to be going back to any kind of significant dependency upon gas the united states it, it is i think genuinely self sufficient in that area it looks like the shale um, gas boom will last longer by some time than the shale oil boom I think that we can see already that the shale oil trajectory is causing the Americans some problems. And that isn't because the shale oil boom is over. Clearly, that isn't the case. But it's become quite concentrated in the Permian Basin. If you look of like where the growth is coming from and a couple of the earlier big plays perhaps particularly Eagle Ford back and are not going to come back to a, a beyond peak. And I think if we then look at the fact that really since at least 2019, and you might argue a little bit 2018, that American presidents, whether it be Trump or whether it be Biden, have basically badgered OPEC plus and going at it through the Saudis to increase oil production suggests that there is an awareness that the United States is back in a world in which it's not like it was in the 2000s for the US, but it's not like it was in the middle of the 2010s either. And that at the moment, the core of the US oil dependency, such as it is, is is met from Canada. And it's not usually going back into the in, into the Middle East for imports. But there's a question, I think, about how long the tar sands boom lasts in Canada too. There's a question about how far wherever the United States gets its oil from, whether that's domestically or from Canada, how far those prices can really be unaffected by the price setting of OPEC+. Plus. So I think that the path out of the Middle East, so to speak, that the Obama administration, I think, thought was there, I'm not so sure is there. And then a lot turns, as you've suggested, Hugo, on how rapid the energy transition is, not in terms of decarbonising electricity, really, but in terms of actually replacing oil in transportation and petrochemicals. And that, I think, is where there's not so obvious grounds for optimism. And that the timescales, though, of how these two stories play out, what's left of the US shale boom, plus the speed with which we are able to transition away from oil in transportation in particular, is going to be crucial, I think, geopolitically, particularly once you add in the fact that China has been r- rather entrenching its position in the Middle East, at least geopolitically. Think of the you know, the 25-year agreement that it struck with Iran a, a couple of years ago, effectively building up a position via Iran on the Strait of, of, of Hormuz, doing joint military actions with the Russians and the Iranians around those waters, and because China doesn't want to get trapped into an oil dependency that's too acute on Russia, which in a way has been the effect of the Russia's war in terms of saying, okay, European countries are not going to be buying so much Russian oil, or at least not crude. They might still be buying refined products from India. China and India buy more Russian crude. Europeans buy more crude from the Middle East. But China wants diversity of energy supply. That's crucial to the whole Chinese leadership's view of energy security. So it's not, I think, just going to say, OK, we'll back out of the Middle East, quite quite the contrary. So, So long as you have the United States still engaged with the Middle East, because the demand for oil will be sufficiently high for it that it can't disengage, and China is still engaged, and the European countries have become more back to being more dependent upon the Middle East, then I think you've got quite a fraught geo- set of you know, geopolitical factors and geopolitical risks around the Middle East again.
0: That does get more geopolitically challenging. And I guess, as you say, what China is doing is similar to what the US has done before. When the US thought we're more dependent on, on the Middle East, it was more involved in the Middle East, it was more you know, to, to manage its security of supply. So I guess what China is doing is pretty rational, you would have thought. But I guess, you know, you, you started talking about the energy transition. I don't know if you would have thought this. I, I think certainly consensus would not have expected, say, three or four years ago that Europe could pivot so quickly and effectively with some luck on gas prices away from dependency on, on Russia. Does that give cause for optimism that actually you can re-engineer s- supply chains of of energy or is it more Europe pivoted away that was successful because the U.S. was available to supply because North Asia was experiencing still lockdown and quite weak demand? So should we not infer from that too much optimism in terms of you can actually reduce dependency quite quickly? And secondarily, to play this forward, we can debate how quickly energy transition happens away from fossil fuels. And certainly in Europe, Someone like Germany focuses on renewables a lot, but it's not particularly conducive to to renewables. It's not particularly windy and it's not particularly sunny. At least the UK has wind. But you play it forward, eventually energy flows are going to change and geopolitical power derived from energy is going to change in a world where we have more abundant energy. And you could argue, you could be very utopian and say, you know, once we can really can store energy and sure, it's a big challenge but you can do more and more each year, the world really look, could look quite different. We can get into the whole sort of behavioural aspects of what does abundant energy mean for a modern economy. But certainly geopolitically, these dependencies surely begin to shift.
1: On the first question, I think that there's um, an optimistic answer and a pessimistic answer. I think the optimistic answer is, is that it was it was possible, I think, or to reduce the actual demand for gas in Europe. I think some of the significant reduction in industrial demand for gas may still play out in terms of higher food prices this year, but because of the absence of you know, using gas for fertilisers and, and the consequences then that had for poorer countries in the world in, in fertiliser markets. But I think that there were clearly energy efficiencies, or put it the other way around, there was considerable energy inefficiency in the way in which gas was industrially being used in Europe, I think. I think that's partly what last year showed. And that's encouraging. Because if you just looked at the the raw numbers in terms of the reduction of industrial gas consumption, you would have expected a much greater economic hit than what there was. I think what's not so encouraging is the reality that the reason why European countries were able to adjust in the way in which they did was that their demand for liquid natural gas and their ability to pay higher prices basically shut out a significant number of poor Asian countries out of those liquid natural gas markets. I would say, and most spectacularly, you know, Pakistan, where it was profitable for the LNG companies to break the contracts, the long-term contracts that Pakistan had, pay the penalties, and sell to European countries, companies in the in the in the spot market. So, I don't think we as Europeans should be very complacent or boastful about our ability to detach from Russia in this respect, because we really pushed the reduction in demand on onto others and to others who were poorer than we are. And I think that this competition essentially between European countries and Asian countries for liquid natural gas is going to go on. I think one of the questions that we still don't quite know the answer to is how is the Chinese leadership reading that? Because there was quite a significant fall off in Chinese demand for liquid natural gas in 2022 compared to a large increase, a very large increase the previous year. Was it the case that that's entirely explained by China's weak economic performance in 2022? Was China also in part shut out of those markets? Was it the case that the Chinese leadership feared that they were being shut out and so moved to try to increase domestic gas capacity or switch to coal where the generation of electricity is concerned? I think the jury may be still out, but I think there's beginning to be evidence that really that the Chinese leadership is a bit fearful about where this competition for liquid natural gas imports has left china in terms of the the future i think it's clearly the case that if you manage to decarbonize electricity leaving the nuclear question out of it for the moment and then to electrify where oil was doing the work before and also, electrify in terms of heat pumps are replacing gas and in heating. You are taking out of the picture the direct geopolitics of energy, because you are not finding the sun and or the wind in another part of the world and literally taking extracting it and bringing it to your country. It's a completely different. It's a completely different dynamic than that. You know, we're using the the sun and the wind for electricity from where we are. We're not going off in search of it. And that is, I think, fundamentally different, really fundamentally different. I think, though, that once we factor in that our ability to use the sun's and the wind's energy is dependent upon metal extraction. And then we think about the arbitrary distribution of metals around the earth and the fact that one state, China, already is dominant in the production of some of those metals or the extraction of some of those metals, but certainly in the supply chains around and processing of rather more of them, that that means that the geopolitics of energy comes back in that form. It's indirect rather than direct because we're not got to, as I say, explore and extract energy itself. But in order to use the energy that we are going to use, we need to extract metals and minerals from under the earth. And that already has a geopolitics to it. And then I think when it comes to Europe, the European countries are all pretty much going to have some of the same difficulties in this geopolitical age that's coming as they've had in the age of oil and gas, because none of the European countries are particularly well endowed with these metals. And to the extent that there are some of them that are important in some European countries, there's considerable domestic political resistance for environmental reasons to the extraction of metals, to mining metals. So I think that the geopolitics will be different and it may well be that it's more about the supply chains around The extraction and processing or the production the processing than it is about the actual extraction. But there will be a geopolitics of the extraction of metals. As I say, I think that we can we we can already see that in terms of China's dominance of that and the fact that the fear of China's dominance has induced so much almost panic in Washington and you know, commitment to try to give the United States a domestic mineral base. In order to compete with China in the energy future.
0: So I think my next question leads on from that, which is really around technology. So previously on, on, on the podcast, we've had Chris Miller who wrote Chip Wars. And I think that's very front and center that if my more utopian optimistic view is that energy reduces, which isn't to say it goes away, reduces from its current importance to geopolitics, surely very high-end intellectual property which manifests now in the best chips in the world that the us is trying to restrict chinese access to one of the things that chris miller says in his book is that the us had an epiphany in the vietnam war the missiles weren't accurate why weren't they accurate because the tech wasn't good enough so we need to have better chips we need to have better better semiconductors so how do you not reduce how do you slow the increase in potency of Chinese military power, restrict asset access to chips? Are chips becoming as geopolitically important or certainly of a similar geo- geopolitical importance to energy? How do you think about really high-end intellectual property, particularly specifically around chips, and that is an increasing source of geopolitical power? Does that enter into your equation, into your mix?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that if I'd spent more, if I'd decided to spend more time on east asia the geopolitics of east asia itself then i absolutely would have made the semiconductor issue quite pivotal to that i decided for a set of reasons really to leave out the the geopolitics of east asia outside the context of what was happening to american power more generally and china's ascendancy in the twenty-first century, not because I didn't think it was important, but because I wanted to make sure that the three parts of my book, like relatively reasonably at least, aligned with each other. And as I didn't intend to talk about the domestic politics of the, the the domestic politics of any East Asian country or the domestic economies of any East Asian country, I left that side of it also out of the the geopolitics while trying to draw out the parts of it that I thought were significant for the overall story that I did. Want to tell? I think that it's quite hard to think that there's a really direct parallel between an energy geopolitics and the chip issue as it plays out at the moment, because Taiwan is obviously absolutely pivotal to that. And the really interesting and terrifying thing there can, in one sense, be put quite simply which is, is that both the United States and China have a dependency on an island over which they are in geopolitical conflict over. And in fact, if you just think about it in a territorial sense, as opposed to the other ways in which geopolitical conflict manifests themselves, that is the principal geopolitical fault line between the, the US and China. And it happens to be the place that both sides are in as things stand, very economically dependent upon, and both sides are trying to escape their dependency on Taiwan by creating, you know, a domestic essentially domestic semiconductor industry. But given the complexities that that involves and the supply chain that are bound up with the Taiwan manufacturing company, again, that's much easier, like said, much easier said than done. So. I don't think that there's any way of analysing the state of the geopolitical situation between the US and China without making that pretty central to it. I would also say, though, that I don't think that that means that the oil question goes away. Quite the contrary. Because what it means is, as that issue is playing itself out over Taiwan, that China has a, a vulnerability that the United States doesn't have. In that China has high maritime oil dependency upon oil, and the United States Navy has got the ability to blockade the import of oil to China at a time of war, if that is what is coming. So I wouldn't see it as a kind of choice between are we moving, living in a world where we should really spend our time really thinking about technology and how that contributes to geopolitical tension, and rather than versus. We're still living in an energy-driven world. We're we're living in we're living in both, and they interact with each other. And understanding the interaction, I think, is crucial to being able to understand well what the geopolitical moment we're in is.
0: And and the thing you didn't mention, of course, time, is that Taiwan is seismically unstable. It is built, you know, on on a big fault line as well. Just to make it even more kind of surreal. But I guess part of my question was access to the very best technology is going to give you a better than even chance of driving productivity. So if high energy prices are sort of anti-productivity for those who have external energy dependencies, access to the best technology can give you a productivity boost, which is what you need with deteriorating demographics you can't argue that i mean any all economies need productivity boosts but certainly western economies do given they have tougher demographics so going back to the question again it's saying so if the us has better access to, to technology than china does does this give the usa an ongoing economic advantage that enables it to retain highest share of global gdp best military its power will continue to have that correlation between forefront of technology feeding back into a more productive economy which it is versus China GDP per capita is way, way higher is that is that a too sort of bullish pro-American kind of economic power thesis
1: no because but I, I would say that actually there's a whole set of economic areas where the United States power should really not be overestimated and China's power sorry underestimated and China's power shouldn't be over estimated the united states you know is more powerful i think in financially in terms of the dominance of the dollar and the ability of the united states to use access to dollar swaps to exercise power than i'm not saying that it's ever been but certainly than it was 20 years ago the united states is much less vulnerable as an energy importing state than it was 20 years ago. I think that it's certainly true that China has made progress in certain economic areas around the energy transition, including electric vehicles, on another level to the US so far. But China can't escape this tech problem around the successes that it that it does have. And this is where I think that the, you know, the energy question and the the chip question come back together again, particularly, obviously, where electric vehicles are concerned. So I think if you put together the US strengths and China's weaknesses, we are still living in a world where the balance of advantages in these areas lie with the United States, and they don't lie with China. The only thing I think where you would really, where we really would have to qualify that, as I say, is on is on the metals question, where I I, I think China really is in a, China really is in a dominant position. But if the U.S. succeeds over the next decade in what the Biden administration hopes to get out of the Inflation Reduction Act, then I think that it's not implausible to see a world in which American power gets stronger and stronger and China actually, China actually weakens.
0: That's a pretty interesting con- conclusion, uh, uh, I think, to kind of get to. Not, not necessarily a conclusion, but certainly a, a scenario. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, my list of things to ask you about is very long, and we're not going to get through them all, don't worry. But it is there is an argument that actually we've seen peak, peak US financial power, that the sanctions applied to Russia may turn out to have some negative unintended consequences, which is the push to de-dollarize that why should country A buying goods or services from country B, neither of whom in the U.S. have to settle in dollars. Obviously, that's most pertinent in in commodities. So have we seen, was 2008 crisis, was that the kind of the off for peak U.S. financial power the move to de-dollarize digital currencies, and I guess the kind of ongoing dependence on the dollar that really manifests in shortages and financial crises. And, And we saw it during COVID where the Fed acted as the world's central banker and made available all sorts of sort of financial contortions to make dollars available. Is that a good situation for the US to be in? Does the US necessarily want to have this power via its currency? And secondarily, is is there sufficient movement, in your view, to de dollarize and to kind of reduce most countries' external dependency on dollars?
1: I don't think that the peak of U.S. power in this respect was like two thousand and eight. I think there was going. If there was a peak, and I'm not really yet convinced of that, but it would have to be like in March two thousand and twenty, as you 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 said, where the entire well, pretty much the entire world was dependent upon how the Fed reacted at that moment. And I would say that if we had a, a repetition of such a financial crisis, I think exactly the same thing would happen. I don't think that the world financial system and the way in which international banking works has changed radically in the last couple of years that mean that the dollar is less significant than it was. I think the desire for... Countries who don't have good relations with the United States, and obviously start with like Russia and like China, not to be caught in doing trade with each other in dollars is very understandable. But the Chinese have been trying to deal with that problem for probably 15 years now. They still don't have, you know, a currency as we know that's convertible fully on the capital account. I think that the desire for escaping the dollar has been intensified by the sanctions that were put on Russia. But I'm not sure the capacity to escape the dollar has really been strengthened by that. I mean, if you just want a kind of like, it's not a trivial example, but just showing the permanence of the dollar in a world that's been shaped for the last year by, you know, like Russia's war, and the transit payments that Russia still makes to Ukraine, you know, done in dollars. We still live in a dollar world, I think. And I think that that is the point that is very difficult for the challenges to the United States to get past. The thing that they have, if we're moving to a world of kind of like a China, Russia, OPEC plus block, then that's a kind of commodity block. I mean, obviously, it's got a big commodity consumer in that in China. But I think that China is is trying to make sure that it kind of gets close to as many OPEC country sorry, OPEC plus countries as possible. And then on the opposite side, we've got the US and European countries and some others, Japan, Australia. But if you then say like what's what's the center of 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 that, it's US power. And what's the center of US power? I think it is still US financial power. And in that sense, I think it's revealing that the first significant move that the United States made against Russia after the invasion was the financial sanctions. Now, they haven't had the impact that Washington would have hoped in terms of actually changing Russian behavior. But was that pretty big shot to Putin? I think absolutely. There's no way he would have left, I think, 50 percent of Russia's foreign exchange reserves outside Russia if he thought that the United States was capable of doing that. And obviously it's it's caused considerable fear in China. But I don't see that they really have an alternative, particularly in a way in China's case, because of the way in which Chinese firms, Chinese banks have become integrated into the world financial system.
0: Is what I'm about to describe a too rosy scenario in your view that actually run a wave of on the cusp of quite large productivity improvements from the ongoing big steps forward in, in com- computer power, computer processing, that actually, you know, we're bending more and more atoms. So we're seeing big advances in, in medicine that we are going to have something of a productivity surge. AI will contribute to that as long as you know you, you keep it reasonably tame. Living standards can go up. Maybe we have two spheres in the world, but can they actually peacefully coexist? We had the Cold War. It was different, of course, but nevertheless, there were no major conflagrations. And so actually your book, which is called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, as we said, you might be a little bit too pessimistic that there's enough good stuff going on and there are enough, I guess, constraints to Cold Wars becoming hot wars and you can be pretty innovative and increase living standards during Cold Wars. It doesn't have to be bad news.
1: Yeah, I don't dispute that you can, you can increase living standards during like cold wars. I think that the struggle is, it's not the only one, but I'm just going to concentrate on this one, is that the optimistic story relies on quite rapid technological innovation taking place where the energy transition itself is concerned. I think, the bottom line there is maybe it will, maybe it won't. The, the the bottom line there is actually epistemological uncertainty. And that's what makes actually both this is a, a problem for governments in deciding policy and also in then handling the politics of it with their citizens like very difficult because the amount of uncertainty is huge. And it that sense you know it makes a big difference, like whether significant technological breakthroughs on storage occur within five years 10 years 15 years and i think the reason why it makes I mean that will make a big difference in itself but the reason why it makes such a big difference is is because the fossil fuel energy regime particularly in regard to oil is in its own difficulties in my view independently of the energy transition and the climate change question so even if we lived in a world in which climate change wasn't happening in the way in which it is and driving the energy transition, we would still need to be doing an energy transition because we have reached, I think, some not quite the end, but towards the end of an era in which oil was relatively cheaply available, at least for Western countries, and that didn't, at least in the eighties, nineties, first part of the two thousands, cause too many monetary financial problems but I think that age came to an end that interlude between the 70s and where we are now came to an end around 2005 and it's the product of the rise in west sorry the rise in Asian energy consumption running into the stagnation of the production of oil minus shale and tar sands and so if we make rapid progress on the energy transition then this is just the kind of A relatively temporary problem that we're going through. We can see that it's caused certain economic difficulties over the last couple of decades, but there's light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. But actually, if over the next 10 years the world is still going to be using somewhere between 90 and 100 million barrels of oil a day, or 95 to 100 million barrels of oil a day, and we're not substituting for oil quite rapidly then there's a problem
0: well look i think i think that's as as good a place as any to finish helen i think there's a lot more i mean my list of questions goes on to several pages there's a lot more i could have asked you but not for today i think we've covered a lot of ground i want to thank you for taking the time it's been great to have you on the show and it has been an hour full of thoughtful insights for us to think about so thank you again it's been wonderful to have you on
1: oh it's been a great pleasure to talk to you hugo
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at WilliamBlairIM.
2: This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.